Everyone else, you will need a Bible. You will extra need it today. You will need your thinking caps today as we come to John chapter 16. We have a weird chapter and verse break here. So we're picking up in the middle of verse 4 going through verse 11. John 16, middle of verse 4 through verse 11. You can find that on page 902 in the Pew Bible there in front of you. Last week was our loving witness to a hating world. How do we respond to the world? How are we to live as God's holy people in this sinful world? Witness was what we considered. Witness is one of the main reasons that we're here, and yet it's one of the main things we struggle with, and so we need to talk about it more. And we have a perfect passage for that, I think. I think we do. There are a number of times that Jesus says hard things, things that seem absolutely crazy. This shouldn't surprise us, as he is the infinite, holy creator, and we are the finite, sinful creature. Still, there are some things he just says them, and it just doesn't seem quite right. We come to one of those today in verse 7. It is to your advantage that I go away. I mean, uh, really? Jesus? I can't help sometimes still thinking, you know, if if I could just see Jesus with my physical eyes, right? If I, a modern day doubting Thomas, could just see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, then I'd have no trouble believing. I, I would no longer have any doubts. I would no longer so struggle with sin because then Christ would be so real to me. It is to your advantage that I go away. Can that really be correct? But that's not even the hard part of our passage. That's verse 8. When the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. I just full disclosure before we begin. I don't know exactly what that means. I'm not entirely sure what that means. I have wrestled with it all week. Carson says it's difficult to decide. A.W. Pink says there's hardly a sentence in this gospel more generally misunderstood than verse 8. And ironically, I think he misunderstands the verse, so it's an ironic statement. So what we're going to do is we're going to consider it, and I'm going to give you my best shot. I'll give you the alternative option as well. I'm open to being wrong on some of the particulars, but I think that the big key ideas should be clear enough and correct enough. We're talking once again about the world. Remember, this is obvious, but it's important. This world is that thing in which you do everything that you do. The world is the context of the whole of your life. So it's important to understand that all-encompassing world. But we're going to consider it this morning in relation to the Holy Spirit. For he is primarily what these verses and what our next few sermons are going to be about. And and don't miss this. Notice where we are. We are in chapter 16. The whole of chapter 17 is a prayer. It's God the Son talking to God the Father. It will, of course, be a very instructive prayer for the disciples and for us to hear. But that means that these words, chapter 16, are literally Christ's last words of instruction to his disciples before the suffering begins in chapter 18. Here, my beloved, is the last and most important thing for you to know. And that thing, again, is a person. It is the Holy Spirit. 
Let not your hearts be troubled. He has said all the way back in 14.1. How in the world could our hearts not be troubled in such a troubling world? The Holy Spirit. The often missed, often misunderstood Holy Spirit. And so we consider him again and we consider him first today in his relationship with and his role in the world. Who is the Spirit? What does he do? And what does that mean for you? What does that mean for the world? Here's the big idea. The Spirit convicts the world of sin, saving his people out of that world, and sending his people to that world to save more. The Spirit convicts the world of its sin, saving his people out of that world, and sending his people to that world so that he can save more. Three points. We have to start with the world. Point number one is part of that world. I'll explain. Point number two, the selfishness of that world. Then point number three, the the big idea we'll see is the Spirit's conviction of that world. Complicated outline? Yeah, maybe. It's a complicated passage. Let's, Let's see if I can be clear as we work through it and see the blessed advantage that we have in the Holy Spirit and how we should live and witness in light of who he is and what he does. Let's read John chapter 16. This is the most important part. Pay attention. Starting in the middle of verse 4, I will read uh, all the way through verse 11. But this is what God himself wants to speak and say to you today. John 16, middle of verse 4, Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. If you would bow with me, let's first stop. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his help in prayer. Father, as we again come to a passage about the Holy Spirit, we cry out and confess that we do believe in the Holy Spirit, and we recognize and understand that we are entirely dependent upon his person and his work in this time. We thank you for the word, for the spirit that both inspires this word and still illuminates this word. The spirit who saves sinners and brings dead hearts to life and grants them the grace that results in repentance and faith in Christ. Father, as Pastor Mike has already prayed, we ask that you would do the most miraculous thing this morning. We ask that that miraculous thing would be uh, the moving of someone from death to life. Father, only you can do that. And you promise, I believe here in this passage, that you do that by your Holy Spirit through your word. And so I ask that you would work through my often weak and stumbling words. I pray that your spirit would empower them. I pray that my words would as well as I am able uh, correspond to your word and explain your word and draw out the great truth of your word. Father, I am in desperate need of your help 
in this time, as is each and every one of us as we hear your word. Father, do your work now by your spirit through this word. Show us Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Point number one is part of that world. Yes, that is a line from Disney's 1989 animated hit, The Little Mermaid. Hold that thought. I expect you to wait in great anticipation for point number two to see how in the world I'm going to connect John 16 to The Little Mermaid. But first, let's set the stage. Let's situate ourselves in our text. Look there again at the middle of verse four. I did not say these things to you from the beginning. What things? Well, look back at what has come before. 1519, the world will hate you. Verse 20, the world will persecute you. 16:2, they will kick you out of the synagogues. They will kill you. Remember, Jesus has been teaching and preparing his disciples for the opposition and persecution that they are about to face. We saw last week that the world hates God, does not know God, and stands guilty before God. And 1520, a servant is not greater than his master. If the world persecuted Jesus, it will persecute Jesus's followers. But why is he telling all of them this now? We told us that in 16 verse 1, to keep them from falling away. Expectations matter. Hey, be prepared. Don't expect things to be easy. Don't expect to be loved and accepted by the world. They hated and rejected me. If you are mine, they will hate and reject you. But why didn't Jesus teach them this before? From the beginning, in the verse 4. Well, because I was with you. You see, Jesus is about to not be with them. I mean, the section begins all the way back in chapter 13, verse 1, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world. As long as he was with them, the hatred and persecution would be directly, directed largely at him. He could largely protect them and, and shield them from it. But once he departs, all that hatred and persecution will be directed at them. And so he's teaching them. He's preparing them for that. Now skip verses 5 and 6 for a moment. That'll be point 2. And look at verse 7. And here's the main point of our text. And it's the person of our text. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The helper, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside, the, the Holy Spirit is the point of our passage. The whole of chapters 13 through 17 deals with the departure of Jesus. And at the center of all of it is the Holy Spirit. As I've said, we have in John 14, 15, and 16 the most concentrated and clear teaching on the person and work of the Holy Spirit in the whole Bible. There are five distinct Holy Spirit discourses. This is number four. The end of our passage next time is number five. You want to not be troubled. You want comfort. You want to know how to live in this dark and difficult world. You need to know the Holy Spirit. For he is what Jesus is leaving us with here. He is what Jesus is sending to his disciples. And he says that it is actually to their advantage that Jesus depart so that the Spirit can come. Why is that? I, as I said at the beginning, I think we just have a hard time 
believing that advantage, right? If I could just see him with my eyes, if I could just see a miracle or hear him with my ears, then I have no problem believing. But let's not forget, thousands of people saw and heard Jesus physically. Just in the one feeding of the 5,000, you have upwards of of 20,000 people, men, women, and children, all of them seeing and hearing Jesus physically. Not only that, receiving physical bread and fish miraculously multiplied for them by Jesus. Thousands upon thousands of people were there and saw him with their eyes and heard him with their ears. And thousands upon thousands of people did not believe in him who they saw and heard. We get to Acts 1.15, after the resurrection after the ascension of the victorious Christ, and we find 120 people gathered in the upper room. And I'm sure there's a few more, but it's a small number, 120 people. But then, in the very next chapter, Acts 2.41, Peter preaches one sermon, and we read, it was added that day about 3,000 souls. Three years of ministry, of Jesus on earth, physical, present ministry. We have a handful of soul. Peter preaches one sermon, 3,000 souls. I'm still waiting for my Pentecost sermon, right? It's coming. 3,000 3, souls. And then Acts 2.47 says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So from 120 to 3,000 and more day by day. The difference? The Holy Spirit. It is to your advantage that I go away. Still, that doesn't entirely answer why. And why does Jesus say that if he does not go away, the helper will not come? It's not as if, like, metaphysically, the Son and the Spirit cannot be co-present in the same place at the same time. They are both, of course, two of the three persons of the one God. They are both, of course, then omnipresent, always present everywhere. So what does Jesus mean when he says the Spirit can't come until I depart? Well, consider more specifically his words. Jesus has been speaking in these chapters somewhat euphemistically. You know what that means. A euphemism is a figure of speech where you use kind of like a softer, sweeter word in place of one that may be harder or harsher. Euphemism in Greek literally means well or good speaking so uh, the way that we say like someone has, someone has passed away, that, that, that's a euphemism for they died. Right? That, that can sound a little hard and harsh, so we say they, they passed away. That's, that's a euphemism. That's what Jesus is doing here. In this whole section, he keeps talking about his departure. Now he's talking about going away. He's talking about his death. He is departing via the cross. And that's why the Spirit cannot come until Christ departs. The Spirit cannot come until Jesus dies. And not only dies, 13.1, again, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And so when he talks about his departure, it's not just his death. It's the whole of the work he's about to accomplish. It's his suffering, it's his death, it's his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Jesus cannot send the Spirit in full until Jesus accomplishes the work in full for which the Father has sent him. 
which is the work of redemption on behalf of his people. The work of saving his people who were part of that world. Look up at 1519 again. If you're paying attention, I'm subtly building my case as we go here. Look back up at 1519 again. He has just said to them, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That, that chose you out of the world implies that first they were once in that world, that they were part of that world. That world, as we saw last week, that hates God, does not know God, and stands guilty before God. That was us. 1985, one of the cheesiest songs ever written by Michael Jackson before he went off the rails, though it was for a good cause. We are the world. Exactly. We are the world. Or at least, before the grace of God, we were the world. Ephesians 2 again. You really need to know these verses and meditate on them regularly. Who were we? What were we? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. So you all, church in Ephesus, you were dead. You were following the course of this world. That's us. Us, we were part of that world. He says, you were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we, Paul now includes himself, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's us. We were the world. We were, by nature, children of wrath, just like everybody else. Remember, the world in John is generally the the world set up in opposition to God, the world that has rejected its maker. We were part of that world. We were dead in sin. And that's why Christ's departure is to our advantage, for his departure is his dealing with that sin, our sin. Point number two, what really is the nature of that sin? Let's consider the selfishness of that sin. Go back to the text. Look at verses 5 and 6 now. I'm drawing this from verses 5 and 6. Jesus says, But now I am going to him, the Father, who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? Now, hold on. Let's be fair here. Look at John 13, 36. This could have only been minutes before. Maybe an hour. I, we don't know the exact timeline, but it's just, this just happened. John 13, 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? What? Right, how can Jesus say, none of you asks me, where are you going, when Peter just asked him, where are you going? Keep reading. Verse 6. But because I said these things to you, we're back in John 16, verse 6. But because I said these things to you, Sorrow has filled your heart. Say it's movie night in the Shores household. You've been preparing for it all week. We're going to have a movie night this night. The popcorn is made. It's time. We're finally going to watch The Little Mermaid. Just kidding. Just kidding. We're never going to watch The Little Mermaid. But say we had a big night planned. It's movie night. We're ready to go. The phone rings. I pick it up. I hastily throw on my shoes. I say goodbye to the girls, and I rush out the door. Their question of, Dad, where are you going, 
is not actually a question of concern about my uh, upcoming destination. It's a protest and a complaint that I am leaving them. Where are you going? It's movie night. We've been talking about this. What are you doing? I think that was more the nature of Peter's question. I think it's more complaint than actual question. They're not actually thoughtfully interested in Christ and his departure. They're just upset that he's leaving them. Their focus, we're seeing here again, is entirely on them. They are selfish or self-absorbed. If they had really listened and understood the nature of Christ's departure and both what it meant for them and for him, their reaction would have been entirely different. They're so focused on self and their loss that their hearts are filled with sorrow, Jesus says, when he has just told them, 1428, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. When he has just told them, 1511, all these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And yet here they are, full of sorrow, because they're still full of self. And it is here that we see the spirit of the world still reflected a bit in the hearts of the disciples. And it is here that we need to consider and understand the true nature of sin. We've already mentioned that the world hates God, does not know God, and stands guilty before God. And that's because the world loves self, knows self, or at least thinks that it does, and stands glorious before self. This is what sin is. It's selfishness. Self is at the very center of sin. I couldn't decide exactly how to word this point because selfishness just kind of sounds so petty to us, right? We tell our two-year-olds, don't be selfish, right? When they're, not, when they're not sharing their toys. I almost went with self-absorption because that's the problem we see here with the disciples. But the, the root of all of it is it's just plain self. Maybe she should be the self of the world and the love of self and the pursuit of self as the chief end of man. So let's finally talk about the Little Mermaid. I know you're excited. This is my trick to get you back to focus and listen to an illustration. My daughters, I have five of them, they have not yet seen The Little Mermaid and they won't. I guess, I guess they can watch it once they move out of the house if they want. But the movie's terrible. And listen, I'm not uh, opposed to all Disney movies person. There are some good ones with generally good messages. Not this one. Now I've been thinking about it because the new live action version is coming out next month and we won't be watching it. Why? Because the message is terrible. You baby boomers have been called the me generation. You went out and produced us millennials. I hate that I count as the millennials. I, I, apparently, I'm a millennial. We have been called by some the me, me, me generation. And if I tried hard enough, I could at least make a plausible case tying the escalating narcissism of my generation to 1989 and The Little Mermaid. I could at least make the case. You probably know the story. The Little Mermaid, she's obsessed with the human world. She falls in love with the handsome human prince. She longs to be part of that world. Right There's the first point. She sings that song. And she, she will do that at any cost. And so she follows her heart. She pursues her passion. She casts off her father's affection and authority. Again, dad of daughters. This is why my daughters aren't going to watch uh, this movie. She casts off her father's affection and authority. She sells her soul to the evil witch who can make her human. 
She just has to win the prince's heart in three days with no voice, by the way. And if she does so, she can be a human forever. And if not, she becomes seaweed or something. There's, there's brief tension and conflict. Oh no, what's going to happen? And then she gets exactly what she wants. And everything turns out well and she lives happily ever after. And the moral of the story, reject your parents, leave your world, ignore your biology to become something that you're not, sell yourself to evil to do it, do whatever it takes to get whatever your heart desires, and you will. Self wins. Self is good. Self is God. As long as you put yourself first, everything will work out. It's awful. And even worse, that's not what the actual fairy tale is about at all. Has anyone ever actually read The Little Mermaid? One person, the English teacher, of course. Uh, maybe two, the English guy. There's got a couple hands here and there. 1836, Hans Christian Andersen, Danish guy. It is a dark and disturbing tale. In the original, the mermaid sells her soul. She trades her voice to the evil witch. She's transformed into a human, and it's agony. Every step she takes on the human feet that are not biologically hers, that she sold her soul to transition to, every step feels like she's walking on knives. She tries to be something she's not. She's in agony. Still, though, she pursues the prince. She dances for the prince, all in just great misery, and she loses the prince. He falls in love with another princess, and so the mermaid is doomed to die. At the last minute, her mermaid sisters come to her rescue. They've traded their beautiful hair to the sea witch for a magical knife. Mermaid, if you will just take this knife, and if you will kill the prince and bathe your feet in his blood, you can become a mermaid again. She can't bring herself to do it, and so she casts herself into the sea to die. And then she ends up, there's some sort of strange purgatory scene at the end. It's kind of terrifying. But you see the difference. Early 1800s, late 1980s. Disney, pursue yourself, follow your heart, cast off all restraint, and you'll live happily ever after. And it's a damnable lie. Hans Christian Andersen, pursue yourself, follow your heart, cast off all restraint, seek to be something that you're not, and you'll live in agony and die. And it's terrifying, but it's true. And this is why I so hate the movie and its message. It's entirely anti-God, as it is entirely pro-self. And the great danger, the great danger of our culture that aggressively pushes this same message, this self-message, is that as a sinner, right, as a struggling, uh, indwelling sinner that remains, I'm still so prone to that selfishness and that same self-absorption, like we see here with the disciples. This message is still so enticing and tempting to me. And yet, it's the original sin. It is the, as C.S. Lewis puts it, the essential vice, the utmost evil, the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Quoted this before, old English pastor Archibald Brown Brown, we need fear no language we can possibly use. Being too strong to denounce pride, 
The proud man is simply one who bends the knee and worships a more hateful idol than can ever be found in the whole catalog of heathendom, and its name is self. Idolatry is the love and pride of self. In your idol, we think of the little metal statue things. You know, that's not really most of our uh, problem. The idol is whatever you put your ultimate trust in. If I can have this thing, then I'm good. If I can be this thing, then I'm all right. Whatever you put that ultimate trust into, whatever it is that you look to and love and pursue to find meaning, purpose, identity, happiness, ultimately it is self that you are looking to and loving and pursuing. Ultimately, there is only one idol, and that ultimate idol is self. Whatever it is that you are looking to and living for and loving, you are doing it ultimately, there's only two, two options, ultimately either in the worship of God or in the worship of self. And so Stephen Charnock could correctly claim sin indeed may simply well be turned a man's self. Sin is a man's self. Sin and self are the same for the world. So we desperately need to see sin for what it is. It's just like, uh, all the, we, we, when I grew up, it was just this kind of these, you know, don't look at pornography, don't drink, don't do all these things, right? and, then, and then you're fine, then, then, then you're good. Right? Here's, here's what sin is. Here are these external things. Again, great, don't do those things. But those are simply the, the fruits of the, this, this root sin, this unbelief. Sin is our attempt to dethrone God, to un-God God, to kill God, and then to put ourselves in his place. All other sin flows from this. It is as we listen to that first lie, you will be like God and seek to live as if we were, that everything falls apart. In our sin, we set up ourself entirely in opposition to the creator God of all, the God who made us and loves us and created us for him to find our happiness and joy in him. So sin, most simply, is, just, is saying no to all that. It's saying no to God and yes to self. So we need to see that we were part of that world. And we need to see the controlling root sin of that world, which is just that pride of self. But why have we spent so long on this? Why is this such a big deal? Well, because of the gospel the good news. Gospel just means good news. Paul tells us it's, it's the power of God for salvation. So this gospel is, is, is how God saves us. It is all and entirely about what God has done about our sin problem. And until you see and feel that sin problem, you will never see and find this gospel solution. Without an understanding of sin, life in this world is beyond explanation. Without an understanding of sin, the gospel is beyond explanation. For the gospel is what Christ has come to do about our sin problem. And as long as we keep focusing on sin as a problem for the world out there, we will continue to miss how much sin remains a problem for us in here. The disciples' hearts were full of sorrow because they were still full of self. Your heart may be full of sorrow. could be for many reasons. This isn't always the case. But it could be full of sorrow because it is still full of self. We need to see that this is the chief and first of sins. And we need to see how much of it still resides 
within. I know that I am in part so concerned to help us see and understand the nature of sin as self because I am still so concerned with how much of that selfishness and self-absorption remains in me. I want to be set free of this obsessive self-focus, free uh, from living for self, free from constantly thinking of self and seeking self and disappointed when self doesn't get what self desires and demands. Are you aware of just how much self-regard you still have for yourself? Are you growing in your understanding of how much you still operate from a primary orientation around self? And are you aware of Christ as your only hope? So see the selfishness of the sin of the world and see that you were part of that world and how much of that sinful world selfishness still lingers. And thus, point number three, see our need for the Spirit's conviction of that world. You like how I took a bunch of time at the beginning and I didn't leave much time at the end because I don't really know what we're doing here. That's on purpose. Let's see if we can understand what's going on. Let me make my case. Look at verse 8. It doesn't look all that complicated until you start thinking about it. Look at verse 8. Jesus has just said he will go away and send a helper. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Stop. What does that mean? I'm working on it. Let me tell you what I think that it means, and then let me tell you the other main possibility. It all revolves around, it depends on that verb, convict. We have a subject. The subject's the actor in the sentence. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the object, what's acted upon. Right? We have the world. And then we have there in the middle the verb. Here's the action. Here's what's being done. Convict. John uses this same verb three times. Look back at chapter 3, verse 20. We considered this two weeks ago. We're trying to under, we were trying to understand why the world hates Christ's followers. John 3, 20. Jesus says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be, here's our word, exposed. It's the same word in the Greek as our text. So if you're looking at the King James of John 3.20, it actually says, lest his deeds should be reproved. That is, criticized or rebuked or corrected. Now look at John 8.46. In John 8.46, we have Jesus talking to the religious leaders. In John 8, 46, Jesus says, Which one of you convicts, same word, which one of you convicts me of sin? No one is the point. He's the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. There is no sin for which he can be charged or convicted. And this, is, this is the primary meaning of the word. Yes, it sometimes means to, to expose, to reveal, but it seems to have the, the general meaning of for the purpose of doing something about that sin that is exposed and revealed. Not just exposed, but exposed for the purpose of being addressed, confronted, corrected. So convict is probably the best that we can do translating this Greek word. So what does it mean then that the Spirit convicts the world? Well, there's two basic, there's a range of things people do with this. Two general possibilities, one negative, one positive. For the first, the negative, you could read that word convict as 
condemn, basically. Jesus has been talking about the world's great hatred and unbelief, first directed to him, about to be directed to his followers. And so now he comforts his disciples. Hey, don't worry. The Spirit is coming. He will expose the world for what it is. He will convict the world of its inexcusable guilt. You have nothing to fear from this world that stands guilty and condemned before God because of its great sin of rejecting that God. The world will be condemned. You will be vindicated. Take heart. The world is wrong. The Spirit is coming as a sort of prosecuting attorney to prove it wrong. It stands, uh, the world stands uh, condemned before God, and so you don't need to be too upset or concerned about that convicted world. So that's one of the options. More, he, the Spirit is, is condemning, exposing uh, the great guilt of the world. Now, listen, the world is guilty. We saw that last week. The work of the Spirit in the inspiration and illumination of God's Word does increasingly reveal that guilt. And when Christ returns, all who have rejected Him and His Spirit will stand naked and exposed, separated from God and without hope. But is that what Christ is talking about here? Now again, it is possible, and and many take this approach, and I don't think that it's entirely wrong, but I lean more toward the second interpretation. And here's why I have belabored my point all the way up to here. Here's why I've spent so much time pointing out that we were part of that world, guilty of the same sin of self of that world. It's because for my position to work, John has to be using the word world here slightly differently than he tends to use it. The reason that the first interpretation is so tempting is because Jesus has been telling us about the hatred, ignorance, and persecution of the world. And so it would make sense that he's now talking about the conviction and condemnation of that hating, not knowing, and persecuting world. But go back to 1526 and 27. This is why I'm taking the position that I'm taking. There, put that out. It's because of these verses. Look at 1526 and 27. Jesus has just said, hating, not knowing, guilty world, but when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness. Bear witness to whom? The world. Remember we saw last week, this is where we see the great grace and compassion of our God. The world sins against him. He sends his son into that world. And then he sends his spirit to bear witness about his saving son to that world. And so I think that it is that witness bearing that we are seeing in verse 8. And what is the great goal of that great witness bearing? It's salvation. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But how do we do that? How do we, part of that world, how do we do that? Only by the Spirit. Remember, he couldn't come until Christ accomplished his work. Christ accomplishes the work, and then the Spirit comes and applies that work to us, to those for whom he has done that work. And this is our only hope. God does something for us. Listen, if you're visiting 
today. This is new to you. If you're, if you're, if you're not a Christian, this is, this is the main thing that we talk about here, right? We preach Christ crucified. The gospel is not that we do something so that we can be saved. The gospel is that God does something for us so that we can be saved, though we were those wretched, selfless sinners. The gospel is not that we were good, but that Christ was good for us in our place. He comes and suffers uh, the punishment that we deserve. He comes and dies the death that we deserve, uh, paying our debt, uh, setting us free, forgiving us, and restoring us to the God who made us. This is the good news of the gospel that you most need to hear. Find Mike afterwards. Find me afterwards. Talk to someone around you if you want to know more about this Christ who is life and this good news that there is forgiveness for your sins offered freely in Christ. So this is the work that Christ accomplishes on behalf of his people. And then it's the spirit now that we're talking about that takes that work and all that he has done and applies it to our hearts. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that the word of the cross is folly to those who are. It's just foolishness. It doesn't make any sense. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Verse 15, but the spiritual person. Wait, who? what's that? Who is the spiritual person? Back to verse 12. We have received the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. We have the mind of Christ. Listen, this is what the Spirit does. We're dead. We can do nothing. We are blind, as we saw this morning in Sunday school. We can see nothing but God, based on the work of Christ, applied to us by the Spirit, makes us alive, graciously gives us eyes to see, to see our sin, and then to see our Savior. We are part of that world until the Spirit exposes, convinces, and convicts us. And so here's what I think verse 8 means. The Spirit convicts in order to convince, in order to convert. He convicts and calls us to repentance. This is the gracious work of the Spirit's conviction of sin designed to bring us part of that world to open our eyes so that we can see the sin of that world and of ourself and then see the Savior who forgives us for that sin and thus lead us to repentance and call us out of that world. Now, as for the rest of the world, as it persists in its sin, as it goes on refusing the knowledge of God in creation and in God's word, well, the Spirit does convict that part of the world, condemning it. And so I think it's probably likely that both things are going on here in verse 8. But I think that the context of the promised Spirit as witness, his encouragement to the disciples that they're going to bear witness also, the emphasis on his convicting to save work on behalf of his people who are part of that world. So the Spirit convicts us who are of that world to call us out as we respond to his work in repentance and faith. Quickly, look at the three things that we're convicted of. We'll look at these quickly and then quick application and we'll be done. Notice the first at verse 9. Spirit convicts the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father 
and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Those are the three things that we're convicted of. The first, he tells us, is sin. And we've already considered this in the previous point. The root of all sin is the putting of the self at the center of reality. The chief end of man is to glorify self and enjoy self forever. The Spirit opens our eyes to the selfish nature of sin, the rejection of the God who is at the center of reality, and it shows us what that sin is, that we may then come to him. Um, and be saved by him, right? Have you been convicted concerning sin? Again, have you felt the weight of your own sinfulness and turned in response, in repentance and faith? Second, he convicts us of righteousness. Again, this could mean a couple of different things. Uh, the, The Spirit will convict us concerning righteousness, maybe convincing us that we don't have righteousness, that that all of it is, is filthy rags, That all of our attempts to cover ourselves, hide ourselves, justify ourselves, prove that we're good enough and worthy enough, all those attempts are worthless. Or it convinces us of the true righteousness of Christ as he is exalted in the resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God. He's vindicated that he is who he said he is and he has done what he said that he would do. There's the perfect righteousness that we need. Here's the fact that Christ comes and does all that he does as our substitute, living, suffering, dying in our place for the forgiveness of our sins, that we might receive his perfect righteousness, counted as if it were our own, so that we, we can stand before God, forgiven, clean, righteous, blameless, all entirely by grace. Have you been convicted concerning righteousness? And number three is judgment. In exposing our sin and lack of righteousness, the Spirit exposes the fact that there is a God who will judge evil and already has judged evil at the cross. There there will be a reckoning. Wrongs will be made right. The world will stand before the holy God of justice. And the ruler of this world has already been judged and condemned. Don't forget Ephesians 2. You are either following the course of the kingdom or the course of this world. You are either following Christ or you are following the ruler of this world, Satan. But Jesus tells us here that he's already been judged. Don't yoke yourself to and follow the condemned. Have you been convicted concerning judgment? Listen to Jonathan Edwards summarize the Spirit's work here. He he can say it better than I can. Here's what the Spirit does. The Spirit takes a person's mind off the vanities of the world and engages them in a deep concern about eternal happiness. Puts them uh, them earnestly upon seeking their salvation and convinces them of the dreadfulness of sin and of their guilty and miserable state as they are by nature, part of that world. He awakens men's consciences, makes them sensible of the dreadfulness of God's anger, and causes in them a great desire to obtain his favor. Have you experienced that? Has your mind been engaged with at least an increasingly deep concern about eternal happiness? Are you earnestly seeking after your salvation. Again, have you just been convinced of, of the dreadfulness of sin? This is what the Lord really did for me in my early 20s. 
uh, to, to bring me to Christ. It just really felt the dreadfulness and the wretchedness of my sin. It made me desperate for the salvation that Christ offers. Have you experienced that convicting work of the Spirit? The Spirit bears witness about Christ. The Spirit convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And we were part of that world. Praise God that He convicts in order to convert. That He shows us our sin and our Savior in order to save. And so you can think of the Holy Spirit as a powerful personal, He's a person, a powerful personal spotlight. He's a spotlight first on you, showing your sin. I think that's the first thing that you'll probably experience as the work of the Spirit. But then he's also, first and foremost, a spotlight on Christ, directing your attention and your gaze to him and showing you his glory and his grace. And this is why it was to their and our advantage that Christ go away. For the helper has come, and we have seen and lived, and he has convicted us of our sin and applied to us the work of Christ. Now, so what? couple applications as we close. Three things. The disciples are scared and sad, in part because they are so focused on self. So there's subtle rebuke here on the part of Jesus. And it's a rebuke that you need, and it's a rebuke that I need. Jesus is once again directing their attention and their focus to his self. Again, eyes on me, Christ is saying. And that's the application that we always need. Consider how much consideration you have given to yourself this week. Just think about it for a second. Just kind of make a chart or two things. Consideration, how much consideration of yourself have you given this week? Now, other column. Consider how much consideration you have given your Savior this week. They were full of sorrow because they were full of self. I know that I am so much more prone to sorrow when I am so much more focused on self. So look to Christ. And when your focus drifts, repent and look again, knowing that this Christ knows you and is patient with you and is kind towards you. He loves, having loved his own people, he loved them to the end. His disciples aren't getting it. They're only paying attention to themselves and he's loving them by patiently teaching them and preparing them and drawing their attention to him. And he keeps directing our eyes off of self onto Christ, off of self onto Christ. And we will see how he does that next time by the spirit through the word. So first, continually and intentionally and aggressively shift the focus from self to Christ. Second, Pray. These aren't brilliant applications here. Pray. John Owen, in his communion with God, argues that the chief work of faith in this world is to ask for the Spirit. It's to pray and ask God for the Spirit to give us the help and the comfort that we need. How much do you ask the Lord to send his Spirit? Do you ask him for that? Do you ask for the Spirit's help for the Spirit's comfort. Listen, this is the gift. This is the last thing that Jesus is trying to leave us with is his great love for us demonstrated in the sending of his Spirit to us. We get the Spirit 
That's the gift. For the Spirit is how we get God as the Spirit himself is God. And so ask for the Holy Spirit. I pray it regularly. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Help me. Strengthen me. Use me. And that's your third application. It's, it's speak. So we've got consider, we've got pray, we've got speak. Jesus says, and you will bear witness. The Spirit convicts, calls us out of the world, sends us to that world. That scary world. That hating, persecuting world. And so what a comfort this passage is in light of our calling as Christ's witnesses. We would have no hope without what the Holy Spirit does here. But we have experienced that convicting, regenerating, and saving work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, and that should give us great confidence that he can and will continue to do that work in the hearts of others. Jesus tells them this as he tells them about the hatred and persecution, but with this, with the Holy Spirit, what hope we have. I cannot save anyone, but the Spirit can save anyone. And so ask. Sometimes I'm so tempted to give up on long situations and people. It's, just, it's impossible. There's no way this person's ever going to believe. What motivation and encouragement we have here as we're reminded of the powerful Spirit and His work Ask for him to do that work. Ask for him to give you opportunities to do that work through you. Ask for the Spirit's help to convict the world and save people as we speak the good news to people. We need to pray more intentionally and consistently about our witness to the world. We talked about that call to witness on Sunday. We, last Sunday, we talked through some of it in small group on Wednesday we got some great encouragement by a couple of witnessing pros that were among us. And then we prayed about our witness in certain opportunities. Multiple people reported back in the days to follow. They had had an opportunity to talk with people the next couple of days. Pray. What if we actually believed that God worked through prayer? Pray. I was greatly encouraged by the prayer and then the opportunities. Church, pray. We were part of that world until God's grace saved us out of that world. We have experienced this great and gracious work of the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be part of more and more people experiencing that same great and gracious work as we, Woodside, speak of the Savior who died for our sins that we might live, doing so in the power of God himself with the help of of the Holy Spirit himself. This is what the Spirit does in the world. And so consider, pray, speak, gladly bearing witness to the grace that you have found in Christ and trust that the Spirit will continue to do that work through you. Let's pray. Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would send your spirit to do his work through your people here at Woodside. Father, I pray that you would do that work now uh, through the preaching of your word. Father, my words are worthless apart from the spirit's work. So, Father, please work through your word. Empower them, apply them to our hearts. Father, show us sin 
Show us what it is in all its wretchedness as the rejection and the hatred of the good and gracious and glorious God who made us. Father, show us for those you have already saved, show us how much of that sinful selfishness still lingers. Set us free from self as you continue to show us Christ. Father, show us the beauty of his person and his work. Help us to more and more see and understand what it cost him. What love he had for us to do this great work that we might be saved. Father, fill us with great joy in believing and resting and trusting in Jesus Christ. Father, we have experienced by your grace the freedom and the joy and the life that is found in your gracious salvation. We are desperate for more and more and more people to experience that same forgiveness and freedom. So, Father, please work through the corporate ministry of Woodside Community Church. Please work through the individual ministries and witnesses of every single one of us as we leave this place and go back out into that world as your witnesses. I pray that we would go in the power of your Holy Spirit, encouraged to intentionally praise and worship you by speaking of your great grace and glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.